It is sometimes said that the hardest time of a great tragedy, perhaps if a loved one has has been lost, that the hardest time in all of it is when everyone goes home. Because then you just kind of are are left there. And you're trying to figure out, well, what do I do now? Well, this morning we're going to be continuing looking at a sign. But this time it's not just one of like a, a number of different signs. No, this is the sign that the Gospel of John is all about. And it's gonna, we're going to start in John chapter 19. And this sign is going to show us great tragedy. Because, I mean, it, it really is a great tragedy that surrounds it. But it's also going to show us the greatest hope. And this morning, we're going to look at three different times whenever everybody goes home. And we're going to see that when everybody goes home that it shows us actually wonderful pictures of what God is doing. And that is like new creation, making all things new. It's kind of the start of it right here at the end of John's Gospel. And uh, also this morning, um, I I guess you might say, and I didn't exactly intend on doing this, but this is what it turned into. This sermon's going to be a little different in the sense that it's kind of two different sermons wrapped up together in one. And I, I guess... You get to choose which, which way you want to sort of listen to it and which way you kind of want to see it this morning. Because on the one hand, we're going to be looking at these three different occasions when everyone goes home. But for every time that we look at that, we're going to notice a time that new creation, that, that God is doing something new. So I guess depending on you know, where you are this morning and, and which, which one you need to hear, you have the opportunity to hear kind of both of them, depending on what, where you might be in your life uh, you know, at this time. But let's take a look at this this sign. Now, the sign that I'm referring to is whenever Jesus raises from the dead. Because, I mean, after all, I said that it was one of the greatest uh, tragedies in the Scriptures, but it's also one of the greatest times of hope. And that's what happens with the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. In John chapter 19, we're actually going to pick up after Jesus has already been crucified and... Then he's, he's left here, and he has died, but now they're going to figure out, okay, so, so what do we do now? What do we do with his body? Let's pick up right here, because we're going to notice one the first of three occasions when everybody goes home. Notice this. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and alloys, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. So this is the first time that I'm going to say that we see when everybody goes home. And I believe in this occasion, it shows us what's truly inside of somebody, or what's truly important to them. Because we are kind of introduced to these two men who really up to this point in the gospel, I mean, we are at like almost the very end of John's gospel. And Joseph, we don't really know anything about him yet. And Nicodemus, we've seen him two times. The first time 
he's he's got all these questions and he he just he doesn't seem like he's at all following Jesus, but he's got these questions. The second time we see Nicodemus, he's kind of sticking up for Jesus in the sense of, you know, he's he's sort of asking the religious leader, he's like, do we really need to be so harsh about him and stuff? But he's not really a disciple yet. I mean, at least from what we can tell. But this time right here in this moment, where are the disciples of Jesus? Where are the apostles? You know, those 12 men that, that we talk about. Okay, we know where one of them is. We know that Judas has already ended his life. I'm not trying to be funny about that, but I'm just saying, look, we know his location. What about the other ones? They're not here. They've gone somewhere. I don't know that they necessarily went home, but they weren't here at the cross at this moment. They left. But we do see two disciples kind of come out of the woodwork, so to speak. These two men that we know very little about. Joseph of Arimathea and then Nicodemus. We don't even get where he's from. We just, we just see he's Nicodemus. And these two men, we see that, that Joseph, he's a disciple of Jesus, but he was secretly because he feared the Jewish leader. So, you know, he's, he's a disciple, but he kind of fears. So, so what does that mean? Well, at this moment, we see what's truly important to this disciple, and that is to perform this wonderful act of, of just a proper burial for Jesus. Because even his, his own like apostles aren't there to give that to him at this moment. But these two men are. And these two men, they step up and they do that. That shows us what's truly inside. And sometimes that, that happens when everybody else goes home. Sometimes it shows us what we are truly made of and what we are truly going to, to place as an importance. Now, there's also a few images. I said there's kind of two different sermons, so here's kind of the other aspect of it. The part of new creation. I can't help but notice that in verse 41, there's this mention about a garden. Do you remember the first time a garden shows up in the Scriptures? It was the Garden of Eden. You know, it was kind of this, this garden that's referenced as the Garden of God, you know, that He Himself designed. And I don't think it's by accident that we hear this language several times at the end of Jesus' life about this garden. You know, it, it, you can't help but go back to the first garden. And what God really planned for us in the first place was that type of union that we can walk and talk with God because that's what Adam and Eve were able to do. Until sin entered into the world, that's what Adam and Eve were able to do. And God, ever since that moment of sin, He has been planning and doing things to where we can have that union again, that relationship with God again. So this image about a garden shows up. It's kind of like the new Eden. And by the way, you might be thinking... Okay, preacher, I think you're kind of stretching some of these things here. Let me share with you just a couple of reasons why I don't think I'm stretching it. One of them is, do you remember how John started off his gospel? In the beginning. What other book starts off in the beginning? It's Genesis. You got Genesis, you got John. John is everything about his book is to show us this is new creation. God is doing something new. He's doing something great. We need to listen. So he starts it off like that, but then... Even previous in this, in this chapter, if you go back to verse uh, 5, I believe is what it is, one of the statements that Pilate makes whenever he is uh, going through this trial of Jesus, he looks at Jesus and he says, this, this quotation is, here is the man. I mean, that literally is like what Adam means. It means man. So it's, it's kind of, you see this connection there. So, so here is this man. Okay, he's talking about Jesus, but Jesus is referred to in the scriptures as being the last Adam already. So we do see those connections, and you might say, okay, that's a little, little much maybe. Okay, verse 30 of this chapter. When Jesus is hanging on the cross, the last statement that he makes is, 
It is finished. And I think by this, what we can kind of see is, and if you're wanting to, to figure out, okay, so you can maybe see some connection in Genesis, but where are we at with the Genesis story? Well, I believe we're at this point, like what Jesus is saying right here, it's finished. I believe we're kind of at the point of the Genesis story where creation is finished. Okay, you're, after the six days, everything was done. So then you have this seventh day, this day of rest. And that's what, uh, that's what God did on the seventh day. You know, we know that. But have you ever realized here that that's also what Jesus does? That now it's the seventh day and Jesus is literally resting. And the first time that somebody said that even Jesus observed the, the Sabbath, you know, whenever he, was, whenever he died and, and whenever he was buried, he, he observed the Sabbath. The first time somebody said that to me, I was like, well, of course he had to observe the Sabbath. He was kind of dead at that time. I mean, he, how, how are you going to not rest on that day if you've, if you've died? And I, I didn't really see the connection. Now, I think there was a little bit more wisdom in what that, that guy said to me. Because I think there is something to the fact that Jesus didn't rise on the seventh day. No, he, he rose on the first day of the week. He waited till after that week was complete. He waited till after it was all finished. And then he rose up. Part of this new, it was kind of, it was like the first day all over again in a whole new creation and a new way of life. And, and I think that we see all these images right here that he was awaiting and, and mentioning talking about and, and kind of he's the one who's ushering in this new creation on the first day of the week on Sunday. John chapter 20 verses 1 through 18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not recognize that it was Jesus. He said to her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will go get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news. I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. Whenever you start to think about those moments, these people that you see who go to the tomb, Mary, she was a real person. She would have been surprised by the events. There would have been an interesting moment that she's just trying to figure it all out. 
So here on this first day of the week, we see this Mary Magdalene, which, uh, you know, really we don't necessarily know a whole, whole lot about her either, but we do see that she, she comes to the tomb with, uh, with other women as well. John doesn't tell us about those. He just tells us about Mary Mag- Magdalene because she's going to have a special encounter with Jesus because whenever everybody else goes home, Mary's still there at the tomb. She's still trying to figure it out. And I believe what we see in this occasion is that whenever everybody else goes home, the comfort is still available. And this comfort is provided in two different ways with Mary. At first, it's these angels who, you know, you, you kind of wonder, okay, so were the angels there whenever Peter and John came to the tomb, or, or did they just kind of all of a sudden appear? Um, it, it's kind of an interesting statement that I've heard one, one commentary person uh, his name is N.T. Wright, and whenever he wrote about this, he said that perhaps uh, we can only see angels through, through teary eyes, is kind of what he was talking about, in the sense that they're sent to comfort. They did provide Mary with a great deal of comfort in this time. But we also see that comfort for, uh, provides, is provided from another area, too, from Jesus himself. He is there with her, even though she doesn't know it at first, but he's still there with her. See, God is not going to leave us alone. He's not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us. In fact, Jesus kind of said something similar to that. Just a few chapters back in John uh, chapter 16, in verses uh, 32 and 33, John 16, 32 and 33, Jesus said, A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And Jesus, of course, there he's talking to his disciples, but he's making this point, trying to get them to see that he's never alone, even whenever they are going to leave him. He knows they're going to leave him, and they do. But even in that time, whenever they leave him alone, he's not alone. The Father is still there with him. The Father is still with us as well. And this comfort that the Father provides for us, it is ever-present. So whenever everybody else goes home, comfort is still available from God. God provides that in in maybe different ways, but He still does provide that for us. We also learn, if you want to look at the new creation aspect of this, do you remember who Mary thought Jesus was at first? I mean, of course, she doesn't think instantly that it's Jesus because she, she, doesn't, she doesn't realize he's going to raise up from the dead. I mean, nobody really has put that together just yet. It's kind of a wonder that they haven't, but they haven't, okay? They're slow, kind of like us sometimes, so they don't always get it. They didn't realize Jesus was going to raise up from the dead. Well, he did, and she sees him. She doesn't know who he is and has this conversation with him at first. But she thinks he's the gardener. And in some ways, she's very wrong. I mean, you know, he's not the gardener. But you know, in other ways, she's right on target with exactly who he is. Because going with this idea of new creation, do you remember whenever the garden was made? Adam and Eve were supposed to, their their task was to take care of the garden, to be a gardener, if you will. So in this image, when Mary mistakens Jesus for a gardener, yeah, she's mostly wrong, but she is still kind of right. Because Jesus is this last Adam. He is the gardener in the new creation. And then in verse 17, this phrase that 
several of you have probably wondered about too. I'm, I'm going to read this again of what Jesus says to Mary because it's, a, it's an interesting encounter. It's kind of a strange encounter. And it's a, it's a weird answer that Jesus gives. But Jesus said in verse 17, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. When you look at that, you know, sometimes people, people have different ways and they're like, okay, so why did he say this and why did he say that, you know? But he says, you know, don't hold on to me. Don't cling to me. And you at first might think, okay, so he doesn't want to be touched. Actually, that's not exactly it because a little bit later, he's, he's going to invite Thomas to touch him, kind of as confirmation that he's really right there. That's not what he's getting at. And that's why in your translations it says something like, do not hold on to me. Do not cling to me. It's more than just touching. What she was doing was kind of embracing him. And he says, you know, don't do that. Recognize this is different. He's trying to get her to see. And the last part of his statement, I believe, kind of shows this because he's talking about how he's going to be ascending to the Father. He's trying to get her to realize the relationship he's going to have with the disciples is going to be different now. It's not going to be like where he's walking among them and, and talking among them. He does that from time to time, a few times after he raises up from the dead. But that's not most of what his ministry is after he raises from the dead. It's different. He kind of makes a few appearances, but a lot of times he's just kind of, he's not exactly there, but then he's there at certain times. It's an interesting relationship that he has with his disciples at that point. And then eventually, after the, the 40 days are up, he ascends into heaven. And they all see that. And then they realize our relationship is really going to change with the son now. How's it going to be? And how's this going to work? They had their own questions. Ten days later, we read the events that are recorded in the book of Acts. And we find out that the church was started. The first gospel sermon was preached. And we see that, that 3,000 people believed and responded and, and followed Jesus Christ. Even though Jesus wasn't in their midst any longer. Just like Jesus isn't physically in our midst any longer today. But yet... His presence is still here with us, and He still is among us. John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After He said this, He showed them His hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. The third time that we see whenever everybody goes home, it's a little different this time. Because what we're going to focus on is that group of people. Look at that disciples. Whenever those disciples gather together in that one place. For starters, did you realize in verse 19... It says that when the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them. They're afraid. These, these apostles that we're going to see a few chapters later, you know, boldly proclaim the gospel message. They're afraid right here. They don't know what the future is going to look like. But here, whenever everybody goes home, in this case, they're gathered together. God offers us peace. That's Jesus' first statement is, peace be with you. That's what he says. Not fear, 
That's not what God offers. God doesn't offer us fear. He doesn't want us to be afraid. What he offers is he offers this peace. And uh, when, you, when you recognize uh, from, from the scriptures what that peace means, you know, you, you maybe have heard the Jewish uh, or the Hebrew word for that is shalom. It's still a way that the Jewish people greet one another today. And it means peace. It means kind of more than just kind of, you know, like, like well, you know, peace. It, it means a little more than that. It means just kind of complete wholeness, completeness, all wrapped up into this one word. That's what God offers us. And in verse 21, we see that Jesus, here in these, these like just few verses, he not only says, peace be with you once, but he says it twice. He says, peace be with you as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Things are changing. Things are going to be different from this point on. And as part of this new creation, what we see is that he breathes on them and he says, look, receive the Holy Spirit. I'm sending you out just like I was sent out. Well, what does that mean? Well, when you look at it, what he says, if you forgive people their sins, how can they forgive people their sins? Only God can forgive sins, right? I mean, that's, that's a statement that's, that's oftentimes mentioned. That's why they had a problem with Jesus forgiving of sins, but he's telling them to forgive sins. Well, yes, God forgives sins. He's choosing to forgive sins, in this case, through the disciples. And that, that forgiveness is going to be proclaimed and is going to be through the hands of these apostles that are right here in this room. Just like the Father had sent Jesus, Jesus, at this point, was sending out those apostles and telling them, I have a new task for you. This is going to be different. It's part of this new creation. And we see that there's, a, there's new challenges also with it. And by the way, if you want to, to see another connection with creation here, talking about Him breathing on them and them receiving the Holy Spirit, if you go back to the first few chapters of Genesis, you remember that one story whenever after they had sinned and, and Adam was walking, uh, typically we call it in the cool of the day, the actual word for wind is used there. And the word for wind is the same word for spirit and breath. So we see some of these same images that when Adam was there and that he was going to have this encounter with God, see, that encounter, he was afraid because he knew he had sinned. He knew he had messed up and he was trying to figure out, okay, well, what am I going to do? So, you know, he, he just decided to hide. Well, now Jesus is kind of bringing some of those same images and he's saying, look, the Holy Spirit, this breath is coming again, this new creation. Now you have an option. What are you going to do? Are you going to hide like what Adam did? Or are you going to go out and do what you're supposed to do? They're given kind of a, a chance to, to redo it. And we're kind of given a chance to redo that too. What will we choose? Do we choose like Adam and just choose to hide? Or do we choose to go out and to thrive and to proclaim the gospel message to those people who desperately need it around us? They've been given this, this chance. The Holy Spirit is still within the church. And we have been given the same task by Jesus Christ. We still uh, have been given this, the same thing that just as he was sent, he's sending us as well to proclaim the gospel message so that other people will know about this new creation that has started in Jesus Christ and that can impact you and impact me and anyone else who's ever lived on this earth and will ever live on this earth until the end of time. That's a great story. And it's true. It's a wonderful story. It's the gospel message that of new creation. It's not by accident that John tells us in the beginning was the Word. He had a new creation story to tell us and we're all part of it. 
So this morning, with these three encounters that we see, we see that first one at the cross whenever everybody goes home. We see that next one at the tomb whenever everybody else goes home and Mary has this encounter. And then we see this third one when they're all at home, all gathered together for fear. We see those three occasions. They show us what our true self is, what we truly uh, feel is important. What does that mean for you? What's truly important to you? They teach us that we're not alone, that God is always with us and He will provide us comfort. They also teach us that God wants us to have peace, peace that truly only God can give. And if you want to hear the sermon of the, the new creation aspect of it and focus a little bit more like that, we see in that first account, encounter at the tomb, or I'm sorry, at the cross, that even Jesus himself kind of rests on the Sabbath day. It's kind of interesting that, that so many times we see throughout his ministry that Jesus is getting in trouble because people keep saying, well, you're not obeying the, the Sabbath, you know, you're not resting. Well, finally, this time, there's no doubt about it. He rested on this Sabbath day. But he was waiting for this new creation. He was waiting for the first day of the week. That's why we're here today. That's why we, that's why we meet on Sunday and not on Saturday. Things have changed. Our Lord changed these things. We also see that Jesus, he still, he still is this gardener. He's tending the garden. And he can take care of us and help us in this new world. And another thing that we see is the Holy Spirit, who has been present from the beginning, he is now inside the church. Well, what about you this morning? Are you in the church? Because you need to be. That's what God has always planned as, as part of the way to redeem us, is that we can be a part of this church, inside this church, where, where the Holy Spirit is, where God is, where Jesus is. And he invites you to join him.